Good evening, fellow lover of the strange and unusual. I'm Jessica Hobbs, author of the story you are about to enjoy. This tale is part of my collection of short stories titled The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic, an assemblage of strange occurrences across the complicated patchwork of 19th century America, now finally available in paperback. If you have found your way here, you, like me, might frequently find yourself pondering the what-ifs that fuel our deepest fears. What if there really is a monster in the forest? What if our mind someday begins to betray us? And what if we move across the Northern Hemisphere only to have brought the malevolent forces of our homeland with us to the New World? Today's episode is a tale of longing, grief, hunger, and the legends that haunt us no matter where we may be. On a personal note, this particular story was one that brought me on a journey through my own ancestry, digging through the traumatic history that brought so many immigrants to North America. Join me in the great migration boom of 1840s Philadelphia for the story of the immigrant. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 1849. Oh, my dark Rosaline, do not sigh, do not weep. The priests are on the ocean green. They march along the deep. There's wine from the royal pope upon the ocean green. And Spanish ale shall give you hope, my dark Rosaline. My own Rosaline shall give you health and help and hope. Shall glad your heart shall give you hope, my dark Rosaline. Over hills and through dales have I roamed for your sake. All yesterday I sailed with sails on river and on lake. The Erne, at its highest flood, I dashed across unseen, for there was lightning in my blood, my dark Rosaline, my own Rosaline. Oh, there was lightning in my blood, Red lightning lighted through my blood, my dark Rosaline. All day long in unrest, to and fro do I move. The very soul within my breast is wasted for you, love. The heart in my bosom faints to think of you, my queen. My life of life, my saint of saints, my dark Rosaline. My own Rosaline, to hear your sweet and sad complaints. My life, my love, my saint of saints, my dark Rosaline. Woe and pain, pain and woe, are my lot night and noon. To see your bright face clouded so, like to the mournful moon. But yet will I rear your throne, Again in golden sheen. Tis you shall reign, shall reign alone, my dark Rosaline. 
My own Rosaline, tis you shall have the golden throne, tis you shall reign and reign alone, my dark Rosaline. Over dews, over sands, will I fly for your wheel. Your holy, delicate, white hands shall girdle me with steel. At home in your emerald bowers, from morning's dawn till eve, you'll pray for me, my flower of flowers, my dark Rosaline. The heavy bang of the door as it slammed shut behind her would echo in her mind forever. Frances woke up in a panic when the pain crashed all over her body. She felt as if every bone below her shoulders had shattered at once. Her bed was wet. The bleeding started right away. The baby was coming, and there was nothing Frances could do but desperately try to breathe in between screams. The nosy women from the other flats came right away. Of course they did. They had hovered over her for weeks, pelting her with orders about what to eat, when to sleep, which chores must be done immediately, and which were too strenuous for a woman in her condition. Here they were again, unwelcome, but not unexpected. Thomas made himself scarce. Where he had gone, Francis did not know. The winter wind was still bitter enough to bite through the skin, especially in the middle of the night. But this was a large city full of men who worked at all hours, and plenty of pubs stayed open until dawn. When the door closed behind him, her mind flashed to the door of the ship as she looked out onto the crowded docks, wishing her own parents and siblings had been among the weeping families bidding farewell to the loved ones about to sail to the new world. Frances could not tell what had made her heart ache more. The sight of so many desperate people, starving, weeping, praying for their loved ones to make it out alive while they knew they themselves had no chance of surviving here at home. Or the sight of the door slamming shut with her on the other side, its heavy bolt locking her into the ship and sealing her fate. They had said goodbye to her, of course, but could not bear to go with her to the docks. She thought of her parents, gaunt and pale, huddling in the doorway to their tiny home, relieved to see their now married eldest daughter leaving for what they assumed had to be a better life. But it wasn't a better life. Not for Francis. Francis believed in Ireland. Even when the great hunger had reached a crisis and so many of her people perished in the rain and the mud. Even when Father Baron told them at Mass they must marry and continue to have babies despite being surrounded by death and have faith that God would care for them in this time of tragedy. It was the first and only time in Francis' life she had disagreed with him. How dare he expect her to bring a child into the world only to see it starve to death in her arms. A man of God knew nothing of bearing children or of grieving them when they were lost. And tragedy was hardly a strong enough word for how her country suffered. When Frances managed to unearth the few potatoes that grew under withered leaves on their land, she would cut them open only to find them bleeding a disgusting brown slime. A house that attracted starving dogs to its premises was a telltale sign that someone inside had died, and families scrambled to bury their loved ones before the animals could eat what was left of them. All the while, the British landlords did nothing, the dereliction of their own responsibilities having crossed well into abject cruelty. Still, she believed that young people such as herself would see their homeland through this terrible time. The grim state of affairs had led them to delay marriage, 
as young would-be husbands had nothing to offer a future bride, and no prospects to provide for a family. Friends Francis had known since all of them were babies met in one cottage or another, huddled by a small fire, hungry and tired, speaking to one another only in Irish Gaelic, cursing the British for their callousness, and imagining a future where the Irish answered to no one but their own. The hunger pains were unbearable, but the time spent with her dearest friends gave her a reason to rise in the morning. This was especially true for one friend in particular, Lottie Morgan. The Morgans lived a stone's throw from Frances and her family, and the days spent playing with Lottie in the green pastures behind their home comprised Frances's earliest memories. Their mothers often allowed the girls to sleep over at one of their homes together when the day was done and the two would not part from each other. It was Lottie who had first told her about the changelings. In the meadow behind her cottage, Frances saw something she could not explain, a small insect or perhaps even a tiny baby bird resting on the petals of a flower. Frances stared at it. It hopped to the next flower, then the next. Suddenly, it looked at her and realizing it had been seen, darted away from her and quickly disappeared. It was a fairy! It must have been! Young Lottie exclaimed. Young Francis was filled with a sense of wonder for a moment, until Lottie revealed why a fairy would be watching them now. Francis's mother was expecting a new baby. The fairies shall be watching you. They want a new baby. She explained as she jumped from one mud puddle to the next, her dark brown ringlets bouncing across the side of her face. But why? Francis demanded, her round eyes growing even wider. The fairies bring their own to the human world right when it's time for them to die. They take healthy human babies and replace them with the sickly creatures so they can rest here forever. The story terrified young Francis. Lottie also told her that envying a baby made them especially susceptible to a fairy's power, so Francis vowed never to look upon her new sibling with jealousy. When he was born, she watched over him day and night, convinced the fairies would flutter in through the chimney and take him away. When the baby perished anyway, Francis was inconsolable. It took mother and father weeks to convince her that fairies were not real and that sometimes babies just didn't make it through the night. It was sad, but it happened, and most importantly, it was no one's fault. More siblings came after that, and all of them survived. Now, years later, they indulged Frances as she taught them Gaelic and spoke of Irish independence at home. They sat by the fire at night, singing and reciting poetry in the native Irish tongue. My own Rosaline, tis you shall have the golden throne, tis you shall reign and reign alone, my dark Rosaline. O'er dews, o'er sands, will I fly for your will, your holy delicate hands shall guide me with steel, at home in your emerald bowers, from morning's dawn till eve, you will pray for me, my flower of flowers, my dark Rosaline. Francis, Lottie, and their loyal compatriots believed in a future where Ireland would once again see the light break through the dark clouds of the Great Hunger, if only they could hold on a little longer. Francis's parents did not share that belief. Thomas Pierce was not a man of means, but he was a hard worker who had saved enough to book passage on a ship to America, and Francis's father convinced him to marry her and bring her along. 
Frances was shocked that the decision had been made without her, and angered that her father should order her to marry a man she did not know, or at least, she did not know him well. He lived in the same town and worked anywhere he could, but there was nothing remarkable about him, nothing that caused her to remember if she had ever spoken with him before. She couldn't marry a strange man who meant nothing to her. She couldn't leave her home and her friends. She couldn't leave Lottie. But the reality of the country's utter devastation was one that could not be argued. Her parents were desperate to see their child make it out alive. They, like so many others, had begged the moneylenders for help until they lacked both the money to leave and the strength to beg for the mercy of those who could provide it. As compelled as Frances felt to honor their efforts to protect her, she agreed to it only when Lottie told her to go. You have a real chance here, Frances. You're of no use to Ireland if you're dead, are you? said Lottie, and both of their hearts broke in tandem. Ireland will not love you any less from afar. Francis and Thomas were married a week later, the very day they were due to set sail. She never did learn why Thomas had agreed to take her, sacrificing more of his savings to pay her way onto the ship as well. She suspected that he didn't want to arrive alone in a new country full of strangers, but never dared to ask him if that was the case. The boat made her sick. She was very thin by that time, and so, so tired. The storms outside that violently rocked them from side to side made her head spin and her stomach flip, and the small amount of food she had inside her didn't stay there for long. Frances could hardly tell which made her more ill, the motion of the ship or the smell of her fellow passengers. They were packed together tightly and slept on a thin layer of straw on the cold floor. The water provided was brown and hideous, and those who dared to drink it regretted it moments later. Tin buckets of filth piled up around the edges of the room, frequently tipping over when the ship rocked back and forth. The utter devastation back home had been more than tragic. It had been exhausting. But as much as Frances wanted to collapse on the cold straw on the floor, she was unable to find much sleep on the journey. When others settled in at night, Frances would instead walk alone on the deck of the ship and gaze at the vast expanse of the stars ahead of her. The sight was almost enough to allay the heavy sense of what she could only identify as grief, and good cause she had to be in grief, for her life as she knew it was behind her now, growing smaller by the moment. Frances thought of Lottie and of all she wanted to do for her fellow Irishmen, and wondered how to do anything for them from another world. Perhaps she could send money so they may stave off the landlords a bit longer. Perhaps she could convince Americans to look with mercy on the plight of Ireland and become allies for their independence. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. The grief was palpable, but underneath it was an undeniable sense of hope. She wasn't rested enough when the ship docked in a large city called Philadelphia, and when the passengers were all herded onto land like cattle, she struggled to stand upright, her mind still tossing and turning with the ocean waves. The city was loud, crowded, smelled like mold, and looked... ugly. There were no trees or green grass, nothing but bricks and iron and concrete, the sodden streets packed with human cargo as rain poured outside. Everyone had told her this was a small price to pay for the chance to live free of the deadly hunger she faced every day at home, but here she stood in this disgusting pig pen, still tired, still thirsty, and still hungry. The tiny flat Thomas had found for them was not a respite from any of the sounds or smells of this new world. It had three rooms, 
and Thomas insisted they were lucky to have so many, but the walls were thin and the air was cold. Babies cried, children fought, dogs barked, and women chatted with each other outside, lamenting the fact that the rain had soaked the laundry they had hung to dry. Thomas built a fire in the tiny cast-iron stove, then decided it was time for their marriage to be consummated. He had been patient while she had been ill on the boat, but now, he said, he had waited long enough. Frances knew as soon as her bleeding stopped that she was with child, and as her belly grew over the months, so did her longing for home. The rainy days finally relented, but with the sunshine came the sweltering summer heat. It was the kind of heat that made even the most jovial of people angry and short-sighted, though Frances was skeptical that joy was ever something that resided in her corner of this strange city. She learned very quickly that the city was growing faster than it could handle, with dozens of boats of immigrants from all over Europe, indeed, all over the world, arriving every day. Newcomers fought for menial jobs, drank to dull their resentment of one another, and spat venomous insults toward each other in the street. And though tensions fueled the city from every block and every corner, it was clear to Francis that Irish Catholics were the least welcome of all. The newspapers were full of hurtful cartoons depicting them as illiterate animals, and signs all around the city hung in windows informing them they were not welcome inside. Anywhere she dared to walk beyond her stifling tenement building, Frances felt exposed. Her peach-colored hair and freckles gave her away as Irish, and though there were plenty of Scotch-Irish citizens in the city, most of whom had been there for generations already, shopkeepers tended to err on the side of assuming, correctly, that she was a part of this massive wave of Irish Catholic refugees who had fled starvation, endured the ship from hell, and landed here only to be treated as a rabid dog. But as homesick as Frances frequently felt, she couldn't deny that the most important need of their journey to America had been met. America had food. Thomas had, thankfully, found a job laboring over the new railroad for the state of Pennsylvania. It was hard, back-breaking work done over long hours of the day, and he usually came home sweaty, sunburned, and too tired for any relations with Frances which suited her just fine. Thomas barely earned enough to afford the roof over their heads, but the days in which Frances went hungry had now become the exception, and not the bitter, painful rule. Thomas also had a terrible cough that never seemed to go away. He'd had it on the ship, but the ship was so dank and disgusting it was impossible not to fall ill, so Frances ignored it when she could. But it seemed to grow worse now, and it annoyed her at night when she tried to sleep beside him. Still, the longer she lived with Thomas, the more her indifference to him morphed into a kind of sympathy for the damage this work was clearly doing to his body. So Francis cooked for him and made him tea, otherwise keeping their interactions as simple as possible. It didn't take long for the other women in the building to identify the new girl, and for them to assume she needed an overwhelming amount of advice. At first, Francis kept to herself in her flat to avoid them, but it didn't really matter. Most of them came over uninvited when they felt like it anyway, so when the summer heat finally relented and a cool autumn breeze drifted over the river and into the neighborhood, Frances spent more of her time in the courtyard outside, while the women all washed their clothes and hung them to dry. From the narrow wooden steps where she sat, 
belly swollen and back aching from the extra weight in her body. She could see the skyline over the river, dotted with trees whose leaves had turned to lovely shades of gold or red, and even Francis had to admit that the warm colors against the brown and gray buildings was a sight of beauty. Do you need anything, my dear? asked Mrs. O'Royden, a woman of middle age who seemed to have appointed herself the matriarch of the small tenement community. Bring us some of your clothes to wash. Won't mind washing a few extra things. Oh, come now, Annie, said Mrs. Lynn. She's not completely helpless, is she? Mrs. Lynn was a younger mother with three girls whose names Francis did not bother to remember. Best to keep an eye on expectant mums, Mrs. O'Royden replied. We don't need the fairies paying a visit now, do we? Of all the things Francis missed about home, and there were certainly many, childhood superstitions had not made their way onto that list. But Mrs. O'Royden's mention of fairies made her think of Lottie. They had written to each other several times over the months, though the letters were slow to travel such a great distance between them. Frances kept the most recent one in the pocket of her apron, and having been reminded of it, reached for it to read it yet again. Dear Frances, how often it is I think of you and wish you were here with us, but I remind myself over and over that it is best you are not. We had hoped for a moor to harvest this year, but the rot has spared none of our crops, and conditions continue to be poor. It's rained a great deal lately, and the dreary weather has kept many of us in bed for much of our days. The hunger makes it difficult to sleep at night, and I find myself feeling hopelessly tired every day. I wish only wonderful things for you, Francis, and my relief knowing you are in a better world eases the longing I feel for your company. I am happy for you, Francis, but remember fondly that Ireland was better off with you in it. Oh, my love, Lottie. Somehow, Lottie's description of how tired they felt made Francis tired, too, and a sinking feeling came over her. It wasn't merely a feeling of homesickness this time. Now, it was tainted with guilt. Here she sat, married, pregnant, and recently fed a breakfast of apples and fresh bread, far from her loved ones and unable to aid them in their cause. A part of her wanted to cry. A part of her wanted to sleep. But the greatest urge of all pushed her to go for a walk to St. Mary's. Mass had been the one bright spot in Francis's life over the past seven months. Sundays were spent with other refugees like her, all of them scared yet hopeful, tired yet ambitious, weak yet building the strength to start again. And the cathedral was stunning. A massive red building with two stories of meticulously painted stained glass, dark wooden pews, and a painting of Jesus looking down on his congregation as though he were watching over them from heaven. Back home, their church had been a modest wooden building, barely large enough for its inhabitants, and as the great hunger raged, the pews were never empty, as the entire town constantly prayed for a miracle to save them. She also loved Father Doyle. He was the youngest priest she had ever met, and he spoke to them in a gentle voice filled with tender optimism for their future. He didn't boss them around or speak from a place of righteous conviction for what God wanted her to do or not to do. He spoke of kindness of family, and of faith that the hell they lived through in the present would be behind them as they prepared to someday enter the kingdom of heaven. Frances took her place in a pew at the front of the church just as Father Doyle emerged from the rectory. Good day to you, Mrs. Pierce, he said to her in his American accent. Frances was impressed that he remembered her name, as they had spoken only a few times after Mass, and only for a second or two. Good day, Father. And how are you this morning? 
Frances was not expecting to be caught off guard by such a simple question, nor to feel her eyes fill with tears so quickly. Oh, dear. What is the matter? She shook her head. I... I don't know. May I sit with you? He asked respectfully. She nodded, and he joined her on the bench beneath the large portrait. I want to be grateful, Father. To be alive and to have a place to live and supper, to eat nearly every night. I want to be happy. I want it more than anything. But I can't. He produced a handkerchief from his black robe and handed it to her. I did not know what to expect from this world, but I did not expect this. The noise and the smells, the cruelty coming from half the city, it hurt as much as the hunger hurt back home. The love I had in times gone by that has since been lost to me is all I can think of, and I cannot bear it. We live in a very painful time on this earth, Mrs. Pierce. Sometimes we must accept that our souls will hurt, and we must allow ourselves to grieve what has been lost to us. A part of her had been expecting to be shamed for how she felt, and told to focus on God's plan for her and her child, or assailed with more advice for which she had not asked. But Father Doyle just listened. How do you live with it, Father? The suffering, the injustice. How do you hold on to your faith in a world so awful as this one? A reasonable question he said, smiling just a little. I don't suppose you are aware that this is my second church? She shook her head. My prior congregation gathered at St. Augustine, not terribly far from here. A few years ago it was burned to the ground in a horrible riot. By whom? A group of angry Protestants. And what did you do? I thank God that no one was seriously harmed. I forgave the men responsible, and I came to St. Mary's to begin anew. And what of your anger? Where does it go? You must understand. Many people in this country fled tyranny imposed onto them by the Church, and indeed by the Pope himself. We do our best to act the will of God, but no man is infallible, and we Catholics have caused pain as often as we have endured it at the hands of others. He took both of her hands in his. Anger, like grief, can turn you into despair if we allow it. Do not allow yourself to fall into such despair, Mrs. Pierce. Look for ways to love your fellow man instead. Nothing had made her feel so comforted since before the great hunger began. The tears on her cheeks had dried and Father Doyle's soft hands wrapped around hers made her feel as though angels were near. Francis, please, call me Francis. That is a lovely name. It means free, does it not? Oh, I... I am afraid I do not know. I was named for my mother's mother. She passed before I was born. I see. That must also be a heavy weight to bear. What? Your name, which means free, has tied you to the concept of death since the day you were born. She had never thought of it in this way, 
but when he said the words aloud, she felt as though he saw her in a way that most others never had. But that can be a beautiful thing. For death and the entrance into heaven will someday free us from suffering of this world. In the meantime, Francis, we were put here on this earth to forgive one another. Find it in your heart to love as best you can. That night, Francis wrote to Lottie as she waited for Thomas to come home. My dear Lottie, I wish more than anything that I could be as strong as you want me to be and to tell you of the wonderful life I have embraced here in Philadelphia. Alas, the truth is more complicated. My gratitude for all that I have is tainted by my desire to be with you. My body is here, but my heart still lies across the sea. I love my country and believe in the strength of her spirit to rise above the anguish that plagues her. But most of all, I love and believe in you. It is my greatest wish to see you again someday, though I fear it may not be in this life and we must find each other in the next. Only then will I be reunited with my own heart, and only then will I feel complete once more. On my love, Francis. The winter months were more difficult than Francis had imagined. The harsh wind whipped straight across the building from the icy river. The cost of food rose as fishermen were not able to catch fish through the frozen waters, and Thomas, as removed as he often was from their life in the flat, had correctly prioritized food for his pregnant wife over coal for the stove. And of course, those nosy neighbors continued to buzz about. Mrs. O'Royden was perhaps the most annoying. Two of her children had grown and married, and the other two, both boys in their teenage years, worked outside of the home as bricklayers with Mr. O'Royden, leaving her with little else to do during the day but fuss over Frances and her growing belly. What bothered Frances the most, however, was the fact that Mrs. O'Royden was the most superstitious of the small community and often referenced the fairies and their supposed plot to steal Frances's baby. Mother had told her over and over again that fairies were not real, but Frances was never entirely convinced. The timing of her brother's death in relation to her apparent sighting of one in the meadow seemed to be too much of a coincidence. The sight of his little blue face in the cradle that morning haunted her memories, and the mere thought of the same thing happening to her own child filled her with a kind of dread so crippling she blocked the thought of impending motherhood from her mind completely. Unless, of course, Mrs. O'Royden was nearby. You mustn't forget to breathe. That is the most important thing of all. Don't squeeze your eyes shut till they will turn red and stay that way for months. A bath may make the child come quicker, but I'm afraid it will be too cold to bring you outside. Frances rubbed a painful spot on the lower part of her back. And once the babe has arrived, remember to keep tending to your husband. It's easy to forget them, I'm afraid, but a wife must never neglect to be a wife, even though she has also become a mother. Frances knew this but still struggled to think of Thomas as more important than a helpless infant. And keep a fire going at all times. Not only is the cold bad for the child, but it will deter the wee folk from coming into your home. With that, Frances found herself in need of fresh air and announced she would go to check for the Daily Post, hoping to hear from Lottie. 
But there was nothing, and Frances began to worry. She had not heard from her in weeks. Surely, if something terrible had happened to her, mother and father would have written to tell her. Unless the same fate had descended upon them, too. As far as Frances knew, the hunger had not improved since she set sail for America, and if Ireland's fortune did not turn in the spring, there would soon be nothing left. That night, Frances dreamed of cutting potatoes back home with a small knife, causing them to bleed. It wasn't just the hideous slime that had come from them when the disease first infected their land, but worse somehow. Thicker. Darker. It was human blood that dripped from inside. She grabbed another potato and the same thing happened. Then she grabbed another, and another, and another until her hands and dress were soaked. From behind her, a baby cried, and Frances turned just in time to see the fairies carry it with them up the chimney. She tried to run after it, but slipped in the blood that now covered the floor and fell, powerless to stop them. Then, there was the pain. It lasted all through the day and into the following night. The women took turns staying with her, cleaning the soiled floors and sheets and wiping the sweat from her feverish forehead. Frances felt delirious from the pain. She begged them to open the windows and let in the cold winter air, and even though the other women bundled up in wool shawls, her skin still burned underneath her nightdress. All day long, in unrest, to and fro do I move. The very soul within my breast is wasted here for you. She mumbled the poem as a way to remind herself that she was still awake. The room blurred in front of her exhausted eyes, and for a moment the lamplight seemed to flicker and swirl around the room. She stared ahead and saw a cluster of little balls of light dancing near the stove. Stay with us, dear. It won't be long now. Just breathe, said Mrs. O'Royden. Frances was suddenly overcome with an urge to run. But even if Frances had anywhere to run to, she couldn't possibly move. The pain anchored her to the floor, and she hadn't the strength to push past the women who hovered over her. The heart in my bosom faints. To think of you, my queen. My life of life, my saint of saints. My dark Rosaline. A surge of pressure bore down on her entire body, and Frances cried out in pain. This is it, Mrs. Lynn told her. Be brave, Frances. You're almost there. Just push. Mrs. Lynn held onto her forearms as Frances closed her eyes and did as she was instructed. She felt the baby finally drop from her body, then immediately fainted.
Frances woke hours later, overheating in her bed. The sheets had been changed, the room was quiet, and next to her in her bed, tightly wrapped in a tiny blanket, was her baby, sound asleep. It was dark in the flat, save for a small glow of lamplight coming from the main room. Frances made her way to the door and opened it, peering out of her dark room and squinting at the small bit of orange light. Mrs. O'Royden sat in a wooden chair across from Thomas. Look who's awake! Come, dear, come sit down, she said, standing and gesturing for Frances to take her place. Then her brow furrowed. Where is he? Frances felt confused. Where was who? Oh, you poor thing. You must be in so much pain. Come and sit, I'll fetch you the boy. The boy. She had given birth to a son. She slowly stepped across the room. The lower half of her body felt as though it had been ripped apart, and for the first time she noticed that someone, presumably Mrs. O'Royden, had filled her bloomers with a cool, damp towel. It helped ease the pain a little as she lowered herself onto the chair. Thomas gave her a look, but said nothing. Francis could not peg what he was thinking at first, but he didn't seem to be upset or tired or as stoic as he typically was. He wasn't smiling, but something in his face told her that he was pleased. He reached over for her hand and gave it an affectionate squeeze. Then, startling her, he pulled away and coughed loudly for a few seconds. Mrs. O'Royden emerged with the bundle. Here we are, Daddy, she said to Thomas, placing the child in his arms. What are you two going to name the wee thing? Oh, a name. Frances had expected to name a girl after her mother, as was tradition in her family, but hadn't even thought of a name for a boy. The pressure of the decision suddenly overwhelmed her, and her mind seemed to forget every boy's name she had ever heard in her life. Thomas looked at her, expecting an answer, but nothing came. Thomas, he finally said. We'll call him Thomas Franklin Pierce Jr., Francis wasn't sure how to feel about Thomas naming the child after himself, but once the words had been spoken, Thomas looked at the baby and smiled for the first time, so Francis decided then to keep any objection to herself. A coughing fit suddenly overcame Thomas again. He thrust the baby toward Francis, who now found herself holding her child for the very first time. He seemed peaceful at first, but in a second his tiny red face twisted, and he began to cry. Francis shot a concerned look to Mrs. O'Royden. Oh, you will have to get used to that noise, I'm afraid. You will hear it often from now on. Francis wasn't sure of what to do. She slowly rocked back and forth to try and soothe him, but it didn't seem to be working. Still in the midst of a coughing fit, Thomas stood up and stepped outside in the cold to excuse himself. Shall I leave you then, Mrs. Pierce? It's probably best for the three of you to get some sleep. All right, Frances said. Rest was something she wanted, but a part of her suddenly didn't want Mrs. O'Royden to go. Mrs. O'Royden surprised her by leaning down to kiss Frances on the head. Don't worry so much, dear. It is the most natural thing in the world for women to become mothers. As Frances looked down at her screaming baby, she hoped to God that would turn out to be true.
weeks that followed were a blur of screaming, rocking, nursing, and frustrated sighs coming from Thomas, who didn't understand why she couldn't keep the baby quiet at night while he tried to sleep. Francis began to wish that Thomas would not come home after work, that he would instead find a pub and drink with his friends as he sometimes did at the end of the week, and leave her alone to handle the child without having to worry about her husband as well. One night, perhaps a month after the baby was born, Francis got her wish. She was relieved at first when Thomas hadn't come home at his usual time, and figured he would stumble in drunk, sleep soundly for a few hours, and not be bothered if the baby cried before the dawn. But as she prepared to sleep that night, a man came to tell her that Thomas had fallen ill while working outside, collapsed during a coughing fit, and never stood up again. Francis knew that she should have felt pity for Thomas, a hard-working man who had done nothing but work himself to the bone since they had arrived in Philadelphia and did not deserve to meet such a fate. Or she should have felt fear for what would happen to her and her baby without his money. Instead, she simply thought of home and longed to return to Ireland now that the shackles of being married to Thomas had been lifted. She also doubted that she or her baby would even survive the boat ride back across the Atlantic. The baby slept quietly in the tiny wooden cradle Mrs. Lynn had given her since her youngest had outgrown it, and Francis sat in the dark, alone. To hear your sweet and sad complaints, my life, my love, my saint of saints, my dark Rosaline. She stared at nothing for hours until the baby woke and began to cough. It was a rattling sound that came from deep in his tiny lungs. She finally broke her gaze and peered into the cradle at him. The noise did not relent and became a hideous mixture of coughing and screaming. A tiny glimmer of light caught her eye, but when she turned her head to get a proper look, it was gone. She looked back at the cradle, and a sinking feeling overcame her. This sickly creature was not her son. Francis considered telling Mrs. O'Royden of this discovery, as her superstitious nature was bound to make her believe it, but she feared what Mrs. O'Royden would do. She would tell the other wives and they would blame Francis for failing to protect her baby, and even though Francis did not particularly like these women or want to be a part of their myopic lives inside the walls of this building, being cast out of the circle would leave her with nothing. She decided instead to visit Father Doyle. The sun had barely begun to shine on the red brick when she came knocking on the large wooden doors. He did not answer. Rather than bring the changeling back to her home, she sat outside and waited in the cold until he arrived, her breath hanging in the air and her feet cold in the snow. She would have fallen asleep leaning against the wall if the changeling had not been coughing and crying the entire time. Francis? She finally heard him say as he approached the church to open it for the day. What on earth is the matter? You must be freezing. It was only when he removed his wool coat and wrapped it around her and the changeling that she realized she had not even gotten dressed before leaving the flat and still wore her nightgown with no shawl or blanket. He ushered her inside. What troubles you? 
Has something happened? She looked down at the baby. Father, I must tell you something, and it is something you will not want to hear. But for the love of God, I need you to believe me. This is not my child. She handed the baby to him. Though caught by surprise, Father Doyle took him and cradled the crying monster in his arms. It is a changeling. I saw the fairies in my home the night he was born, waiting for him. And I swear one came back early this morning to check on him. "'Twas a fairy theft, father. I swear it. I don't know what this thing is or where they have taken my son. I need your help to get him back. I need God's help to make this right. Father Doyle frowned and cautiously placed the back of his hand on her forehead. Are you ill, Francis? No, but that one is. It is not uncommon for babies to be sick, especially in winter months. He just needs to be cared for, that is all. He handed the baby back to Francis, and the coughing continued. Shall I send for Mr. Pierce to bring you home? Thomas is dead. A man came to tell me last night. Oh, dear. That's what this is about, then. I'm so sorry for your loss. Would you like to pray with me? Francis nodded, not just because she needed a moment to speak to God, but because she wanted the kind priest to hold her hand, which he did. Mother Mary, please watch over Francis Pierce and her newborn child in this time of loss. Bestow your grace upon them to see them through this hour of darkness and into your divine light. Pray for us now, in the hour of our birth, in the time of our grief, and at the hour of our death. For it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. They took a long moment of silence after Father Doyle's prayer. But Francis felt nothing. God was not here in the church with her today. A small part of her wondered if he ever had been. Francis walked home in Father Doyle's wool coat, which he insisted she keep, and left it on for the rest of the day. Thomas had not recently brought home any coal, and the flat was nearly as cold inside as it was outside. She crawled under the blankets in her bed and untied her nightdress to nurse the baby. As he drank, she pushed herself to believe what Father Doyle had said, that babies fell ill all the time, and there was nothing unusual about his condition that Thomas's death had shocked her and caused her to imagine things that were not real, that all she needed was rest. But sleep never came, at least not for Francis. The baby slept after he nursed, so soundly in fact that Francis could not tell for a moment whether or not he was breathing. The more she stared into his tiny face, the more convinced she became that he was not fated to last through another night. He was a sick creature who had been brought here to die in the human world, and that meant that her real baby was out there, somewhere, among the spirits. She could keep this weakling in her home and let it pass away, but the sorrow of knowing her own child was lost to her was more than she could bear. Still wrapped in Father Doyle's coat, she set out to find the creatures responsible for this devilish exchange and make it right.
The winter sun had already begun to set behind the tall buildings as Frances walked through the city with a sleeping changeling. She worried it might die before she reached the ferries, if indeed she ever reached them at all. And if that were to be the case, they would put up an even bigger fight to keep her real baby for themselves. Heavy clouds rolled in and thick snowflakes drifted from high above her as she walked. And walked. And walked. Frances had done very little in the way of exploring Philadelphia and quickly lost her sense of direction. But it didn't matter. She left it to God to guide her out of the city and into the woods, where the creatures in question were likely to be hiding. Eventually, the steel and concrete buildings met the forest of bare trees, and any warmth coming from the cobblestones beneath her feet gave way to the icy ground underneath the soft snow. She came upon a small creek, its tiny veins of water still flowing underneath the thin layer of ice, and carefully stepped on the slippery rocks. She nearly dropped the changeling into the water when she slipped, barely catching herself in time. It fussed for the first time in hours, no doubt feeling the cold wind on its face and wanting to go home. I am trying to bring you home. Be patient and do not let go yet, not until you are back with your own kind. It cried, ignoring her instruction, and Francis continued to walk. The forest was quiet, a kind of quiet Francis had never heard before. The moonlight through the clouds cast a silver glow all around her, and Francis longed to rest here in the tall, purple shadows of the trees. The exhaustion finally washed over her, and she fell to her knees, consumed with hopelessness. The changeling would not last much longer in the cold, and perhaps she wouldn't either. If the changeling was going to die, and if her baby were to be lost to her forever, then she may as well lay here in the snow and let herself die too. She had no home, no family, and no means of survival without Thomas. All that was left for her was sleep. And though the cold bit through her skin, she could not have asked for a more peaceful resting place. Just before she shut her eyes, Frances noticed something in the distance. A tiny flicker of light, just as she had seen near the stove in her flat the night the fairies had come for her child. She sat up quickly and looked ahead. A moment passed and Frances held her breath. But then she saw another, and then another. The changeling coughed and squirmed, unhappy in the cold, but the movement meant the thing was still alive, and Frances was mere moments away from returning it to its rightful place. She leapt to her feet and followed the little balls of light, but a moment later they were gone. She looked around in the dark, lost and confused, afraid she had only been imagining what she so desperately wanted to see, until she heard the sound of a baby's cry. Frances slowly turned to see a large clearing behind her. In the center, wrapped in a wool blanket and placed on a bed of twigs, was a chubby-cheeked human child. The balls of light fluttered around it, and Frances's eyes filled with tears. She walked up to the child and fell to her knees, placing the changeling on the twigs beside him. Her son was heavier than the sick one, clearly healthier, and he looked up at her with wide blue eyes. 
A strong feeling of love filled her chest as she peered into his beautiful face. She lay down in the snow and wrapped her arms around him. The changeling continued to cough, but her baby hardly made a sound, save for a few high-pitched coos as his mother held him and a large snowflake landed on his nose. Her eyelids grew heavy. Frances would need time to gather her strength for the journey back home. For this moment, the best thing she could do for her child was sing. Woe and pain, pain and woe are my lot night and noon to see your bright face clouded so like to the mournful moon. But yet will I rear your throne Again in golden sheen, tis you shall reign, shall reign alone, my dark Rosaline. Among the fairies and the white blanket of snow, Francis finally slept. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic. Special thanks to our amazing voice actors, Lizzie Spellman, Angela Cohen, Monique Carmona, Ian M. Walker, and Benedict Mazurik for lending their talent to these characters. Thanks to our friends Brian Taylor, Joe Carrillo, and Dara Stone for their support. And of course, to my favorite composer slash audio engineer slash human, Robinton Hobbs. For more stories from The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic, Subscribe to our podcast or check out the book at jessicahobbswrites.com. Join us next time in the deep, dark, daring, and devastatingly beautiful woods of the Pacific Northwest, as our hero must take down more than the occasional 40-foot conifer in The Lumberjack. See you there.